Welcome, everyone. Richard Krause here with some of my favorite interviews from my television show, Pop Life. You can watch Pop Life every Saturday, 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel and midnight on CTV. My thanks to you, as always, for joining us, whether it's on the radio or television. A little bit later, we'll meet Arlene Dickinson. She's one of the dragons on Dragon's Den and the author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. We'll meet Rick Steele. He's an American travel writer, author, and activist, and of course, a very popular television personality. First up, though, here's Bernie Taupin. He's one half of one of the most successful and prolific songwriting duos in the history of popular music. He's the man Elton John calls his soulmate. As a lyricist to Elton John, Bernie Taupin is responsible for more than 35 gold and 25 platinum albums, 30 consecutive U.S. Top 40 hits. He's sold more than 255 million records worldwide and holds the record for the biggest selling single of all time, Candle in the Wind 97, with more than 33 million copies sold. He stops by the Pop Life Bar to discuss writing some of the greatest songs of not one, but several generations. We talk about what he told Elton John when they first met, why he doesn't like to explain his songs, and how he now spends his days creating visual art, including abstract and contemporary mixed media pieces. Let's get to know Bernie Taupin. Welcome. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Where did your love of art and words come from? One word answer, my mother. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, that's two, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, she was a huge, uh, very inspirational human being, uh, sort of a, I, I guess at the time, would be referred to as a bohemian. Mm. And so, yeah, I mean, I could get very deep into it, but it certainly came from her love of music, the arts, literature, what have you. So, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I've heard stories about you sitting on her knee going through books of paintings right, and coffee correct. table books and that. And you've talked about that a great deal. You've talked about your father a little less. Uh, and He was a soldier, and, and I think that this connects to a lot of the art that Absolutely. you went on to make. Sure. But I don't know that you've talked about it as much. What was him, his influence on you? Well, I think the reason I probably have... Um, not spoken as much about him is because he was very much of his generation mm -hmm. and they didn't talk a lot about the right. past you know they um, not that they preferred to live in the present but um, you know he came from that generation that went to war and um, you know they didn't they didn't talk a lot about it until they got back and it wasn't until later in his life mm -hmm. that I actually um, really got him to open up about it and I realized you know what an incredible life he'd led and uh, I realized that that was a generation that cannot be forgotten and I think a lot of that goes into my work. Well I also saw a connection between uh, the flag paintings that you do, the flag pieces that you yeah, do. Assemblage, yeah, assemblage. Yeah, assemblage. Uh, and and you get a lot of the flags and things from service people, yeah. men and women yeah. who have actually fought. And, and that, I thought, was the straight line. The idea that patriotism, even though you're an American now, right. patriotism is sort of very important. Well, it's a huge defining line between myself and my work. Um, and I just find it a very iconic symbol. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it's interesting that I get a lot of my uh, flags from servicemen or servicemen's families, people who have died, you know, in battle um, and have been awarded flags. Um, and I think that speaks volumes because a lot of people uh, can probably have the wrong <coughs> impression of what I do with the flag. Right. Uh, people are very fussy about how you treat the flag, and it's interesting that uh, I think few people realize that the correct way to dispose of a flag is actually burning mm -hmm. it, with respect, yeah. obviously. Um, but I think it, as I say, speaks volumes that I get a lot of these flags from servicemen, so obviously they have an appreciation of what I'm doing with it. Um, and basically the bottom line is I'm trying to resurrect it and show uh, where the flag has been and it's come from back from abject adversity uh, countless times. The art that you're making these days is a little different. You're, you're looking back at 50 years of working with right. Elton John right. and creating uh, these beautiful pieces that connect a body of work mm -hmm. that we're mm -hmm. all very familiar with to something new. You're, right. you're reinventing them in a way. Well, I, I think it's very important that people understand that there are two bodies of work. Mm -hmm. There is what I call the fine art, which is my flag-inspired assemblages, the, the pieces with uh, musical instruments. Mm -hmm. um, I'm opening a, a huge exhibition in Atlanta uh, this coming week. and. This, it's going to be the la largest exhibition of my work uh, yet. But that's, th there are, there's a very fine defining line between the two, uh, two things. I mean, uh, my day-to-day -day thing is definitely the fine artwork, mm -hmm. but this, I felt like it, it was necessary to create something different to celebrate the 50 years and, and something that was affordable for our fan base. Mm -hmm. And so I created these pieces, but it's a one-off thing. I mean, when the tour is done, these pieces of art will be done, you know. Uh, we're not going to keep, keep reprinting them, but it, right. it's a very, you know, it's, we call it reflections. Mm -hmm. That's there, and the other art is over here. So there is a very fine defining line between the two. I think the thing that connects them, though, is the music. The flag pieces, the fine art assemblages, mm -hmm. Uh, frequently have guitars and things. Sure. They are uh, they harken back to your love of Americana and roots music. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and and these new pieces, which feature uh, snippets of of lyrics that you've written mm -hmm. for Elton John, uh, also obviously inspired by music as well. Sure, but two very very different mm -hmm. kinds of music. One which is our, our own personal catalog, yes. and the other one which is a salute to. Uh, genres of music that I'm afraid may be forgotten in years to come. Mm -hmm. So there, it's almost archaeological. You know, it's it, the idea is that I'm resurrecting these forms of music that have been on the fringe of of modern music for for the past hundred years. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important to me that those styles of music are not forgotten. Whereas in the Reflection series, the print series, it's a reflection upon our past 50 years. How did you choose which <coughs> lyrics to include uh, in the Reflection series? Well, that's pretty simple. I wanted to use lines that were 
probably, obviously, the best known, that mm -hmm. are the most iconic, like this one's for you. Yeah. And things that people I felt might gravitate towards that, you know, it's often said people very kindly will say, you know, you wrote the soundtrack of our lives or my life or, you know, we played this at our wedding or this song, you know, uh, reminds me of my father or mother. So I wanted to sort of grab lines that had were relative to people's lives that I, I imagined would be. Right. So I was really taking a chance. But uh, I think, you know, there are certainly lines in our canon of work that are iconic that people go, you know, they zero immediately on. And it's proved very successful. And I'm really happy that people can take home something that, um, you know, they can cherish for years to come. The idea that these words that you've written have become so iconic. As I was walking around the exhibition last night, two or three words strung together, and all of a sudden there's a song playing in my head. Sure. And then you'd move to the next one. Right. As you sit here 50 years removed from having written some of those lyrics, how does that make you feel? Uh, immensely proud, I yeah. guess. You know, the thing is that when you're, you write something that works its way into the fabric of people's lives, mm -hmm. it shows that what you've done has had a lasting effect, and, and that is a reward enough. I would imagine that when you were writing some of these songs, uh, you thought, okay, well, we'll get a, a chart hit out of it, and then maybe I'll find a new career. In, I remember Ringo Starr famously saying he would become a barber in right, 1967 right. Yeah, or something yeah. like that. But, you know, just last week I was in New York and I saw Moulin Rouge, and your song plays a, a, sure. a key part, part in that for a new generation. Right. You know, right. this is a, a, a song. So it, it is remarkable <laughs> that these songs have lasted. Yeah, I, do, I mean, I don't think that when you start out, you, th you go into it with that in mm -hmm. mind. You don't think 50 years ahead. I mean, you know, I, I sort of famously said when I first met Elton, you know, well, let's try this for a few months, and if it doesn't work out, I'll uh, look for another job. And luckily, I haven't had to. <laughs> yeah. Well, it was wonderful looking at the faces of the people last night, and seeing them because th th these are two very separate art forms that we're talking about, the sure. music that was playing in their head and the art that mm -hmm. they're seeing on, the, on the, the, the prints in front of them. And, and it was uh, part of the show for me was imagining, you know, I walked down the aisle to that one. Mm -hmm. I, mm -hmm. I, and it's, it's a really lovely thing. Yeah, well, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that these songs have become, you know, a part of people's lives, again, is, is yeah. just very rewarding. I mean, that's really all I can say. The film Rocket Man uh, was more than just a story of someone's stratospheric rise to fame. It really was uh, the story of this platonic relationship. Yeah, it's kind of a that you have. Movie. Yeah, it really yeah, was. Yeah. And, and, and it's a lovely story yep. between the two of you. And it, it brought me back to uh, a quote that appears at the end of his new book, of Elton John's new book. And it says, we were worlds apart. I don't know how it still works between us, but then I never understood how it worked in the first place. It just did, it just does. Why do you think it worked? <laughs> I think I'll echo his sentiment. <laughs> um, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. You know? um, I guess I'll go with that. That was Bernie Toppin.
Stay with us. Next, we'll meet Gigi Gorgeous, who recently announced she has a makeup collection coming out with Ipsy. The collection has various beauty products related to makeup. We'll talk about her life and times next. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's meet socialite, actress, model, and YouTube sensation with over 2.8 million subscribers, Gigi Gorgeous. She's vlogged the trials and triumphs of her gender transition and is someone Caitlyn Jenner calls an inspiration and the best storyteller on the internet. In this interview, we talk about her beginnings on social media, gender transition, being a role model, and why she published a memoir called He Said, She Said at such a young age. YouTuber Shane Dawson says a conversation with Gigi is filled with laughter, tears, and continuous gasps of shock. This book is no different, and this interview promises some surprises as well. Here's Gigi Gorgeous at the Pop Life Bar. Gigi, welcome to the Pop Life Bar. Oh, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in here. Cheers. Yes, and we'll start. I know. Twice. We'll start with a with a cheers. Let's talk a little bit about growing up. I've read in your in your book about how you struggled to fit in a little bit and were bullied. I wonder what kind of effect that had on you. What sort of long term effect that may have had on you. You know, it, it was definitely a long-term effect. I feel a lot of people are bullied to some capacity, but I was always out there. I was always flamboyant. I was always around the girls, playing jump rope, right. you know, all of that stuff. So it, I was an easy target, and people took advantage of that, and people would call me names mm -hmm. and scream at me on the playground and push me in the bathroom and make, made me feel scared in, my, in an environment that I thought that... That you should be safe in. I should feel safe in. I'm learning, I'm at school, right. but um, that actually led me to conquer the bullies in the long run and um, kind of become one in some way. In what way? Um, it was kind of in a means for survival, to be honest. Like just, if you're gonna be bullied, if not bully, be bullied, right. basically. Um, and I went to a Catholic school my whole life, so it wasn't crazy, crazy. But things got scary, mm -hmm. and I took control. And at the end of the day, I just found friends around me that really like supported me and that could stick by me so right. I wasn't alone. But, I mean, at the end of the day, my main message is you can't let the bullies win. Mm -hmm. you, need to, you need to overcome them because what they're doing is not okay. And you need to stand up to them in a way. Well, you may be a living embodiment of that, of not letting the bullies win. Oh, absolutely. I mean, bullies are insecure and, um, and scared themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, scared of letting people in, scared of letting people know the real them. And... I felt this guard build up in me from a very young age because I knew people were targeting me mm -hmm. for being the gay kid, right. you know? And I didn't even really get what gay was. Like, I didn't know what that word meant. I just knew the way they were saying it was awful and I needed to stray away from that term because it was negative. And um, yeah, it, was, it wasn't until I found actually my first best friend that um, I had the strength to really overcome a lot of my, my bullies mm -hmm. to their faces and uh, make them stop. When you started on YouTube, being a YouTuber wasn't really a thing yet. And so a couple of things. 
What drew you to it? And do you think that it was just a way of being ex able to express yourself uh, in a way that perhaps you hadn't been previously? It was all like creativity, honestly. Mm -hmm. I had so much like running through me. Like my art class was my number one favorite class in life. I loved my teacher, Mr. Fitzgerald. And- <laughs> If um, you're watching. Yeah, yeah. if you're watching, <laughs> hey. Um, I just loved the creativity. I loved the whole, you know, you don't have to sit at your desk the whole time kind of vibe. And I looked forward to that class so much. So when I was introduced to the platform and, you know, just videos and makeup, I was very into at the time. Um, I was starting to get into it. I was like, you know, this is a perfect outlet. And my best friend was like, you need to do this. Right. He was my pusher. <laughs> so uh, he pushed me to do it. And here I am now. And what did you think was going to happen? Was it in the beginning just a fun thing to do? I can express myself creatively. Did you look two or three steps ahead and go, wow, I can make a living doing this? Oh, no, no, it was right. not that at all. It literally was something that was between him and I and a couple of our close friends. Mm -hmm. We just thought this would be a really cool idea. Let's just shoot this and do it because editing and filming, it was very new. Like there yeah. wasn't like the iPhones we have nowadays with HD 4K. Yeah. It wasn't like we have like the Final Cut Pros of the world. Yeah. It was very, very basic. We were shooting on a digital camera on a regular tripod getting our friends together after school, <laughs> doing little scenarios. We had like this fake reality show we did. It was so stupid, but it was very fun and it got yeah. me by. And yeah. it, it put my name on the map in my school to where I was safe and people right. didn't mess with me. A little celebrity goes a long way. I guess in so. Yeah. yeah, I yeah. think people were like, wow, oh my God. Like, you know, then he is doing something yeah. and um, we respect it. So we're not gonna we're not gonna touch. Yeah. Now, when did you make the decision to share the intimate details of your life? It's one thing to give makeup tips as you did in the beginning, but it's another thing to really open up the doors and and invite everyone in. What brought that on? It was it was pretty. I want to say it was slow. It was a slow growth, mm -hmm. but it honestly was very fast. Like it. It escalated quickly. Like when I posted, I actually was just showing one of my best friends um, some of my earlier videos, and I was shocked by how fast it escalated. Right. Like it was just makeup, it was fun, it was whatever, and then all of a sudden I was like, five things you don't know about me, or like most embarrassing moments in my life. Like right. that's letting people in. It is. So I think I was ready for it. I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to share. And the response must have been such that you went, oh, this is working. Right, yeah. because people were communicating, people were talking. And I mean, back then, like you said, it wasn't what it is now. Mm -hmm. So it was very, very just thrilling to have these strangers talk to you um, at that capacity, that mm -hmm. fast. Like you post a video and then within, you know, seconds, minutes, hours, there are, there's a whole story going on. And I think that you have to be authentic and you have to be genuine to get people to respond in that way. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've always said nothing fake mm -hmm. lasts very long. And I feel people can see through that. And what I've always tried to do is just really stick to the basis of it is work, it is fun, yep. you know, but you always have to have a really great time doing it. 
That was Gigi Gorgeous. Stay with us. Next, Arlene Dickinson, star of Dragon's Den, business person and author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. Welcome back to some of my favorite interviews from the last season of Pop Life. You can watch Pop Life on CTV News Channel, Saturdays at 8.30 or midnight on CTV. Here we have an in-depth interview with Arlene Dickinson, Canadian businesswoman, investor, television personality, and author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. She is a dragon investor on the CBC television show Dragon's Den. She owns one of Canada's largest independent marketing and communications firms and is someone who has shaped and reshaped her life. Arlene stops by the Pop Life Bar to discuss her new book and how to make meaningful changes in your life at any age. Let's talk a little bit about your young life. So you were broke, you were staying on your father's couch, and instead of giving you money, he gave you advice. Can you tell us what the advice was and what it meant to you? Yeah, you know, my dad could have easily given me a handout. Mm -hmm. I always say, you know, he could have said, okay, I'll help you through the challenges you're going through. But what he did is he really convinced me that I had it within me to be in control of my own life and that it was nobody else's job to, you know, help me get where I needed to Mm -hmm. get to. It was up to me to get off the couch and go and do something with my life. And he instilled, I guess, confidence, which was, you know, it's the best thing you can give somebody. Yeah, it's worth more than money. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more. <laughs> <laughs> now, what do you need to ask yourself? Your book is all about reinvention. Right. What do you need to ask yourself when you're thinking about changing your life? Well, you know, it's very funny. I think that um, there's a couple things you have to ask yourself. I, I call it a little bit, if you think about the three C's, I think, first of all, you have to think about, you know, what it is you have that is... Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. If you introspection, if you think about introspection and how you can kind of understand what your currency is. So the first C being currency. Like what is it you can offer? What is it you have to offer as an individual? We all have something we can offer, right? So what's your currency? And then you have to think about what it is that you believe is your core purpose, your why. Right. Why do you get up every day? Why do you get out of bed? What is it that drives you? And then finally, you have to think about context. You know, what is the world that you're living in? And what is it, as you reinvent yourself, how can you be, you know, um, in that world and actually be able to succeed in that world? So you have to understand the context of the world. You can't reinvent yourself to something that's not going to be relevant. Right. So those three things. Well, you say in the book that to understand reinvention, you have to understand marketing. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, the whole book is based on business yeah. principles, and yeah. it is really about, that's kind of got what got me going. I mean, I needed to reinvent, and so I was able to take all of the business principles that we used in terms of branding and helping companies reinvent themselves and turn it into something that I could use personally. And, you know, there's business principles are not fluffy, empty sayings. Mm-hmm. They're pure principle on why you should do these things and what is the expected outcome and what's the process. So, Well, when we look at you, though, and I introduce you as multimillionaire Arlene Dickinson. We talk about that. We think, well, she doesn't need to reinvent herself. But it's an ongoing thing always, isn't it? Always. I mean, yeah. we all have a chance to. And generally, honest, generally, at people reinvent themselves because something's happened in their life. Mm-hmm. They, they go through a divorce. They get ill. They, they, they lose something. You know, and, and so there's something catastrophic that has happened. For me, it was the flood in Calgary mm-hmm. that actually drove me to have to reinvent myself. Mm-hmm. But I think you don't know what's going to happen next. And really, catastrophe or, or what feels catastrophic yeah. can happen any time in your life. And that's the moment that you really have to think hard about what you're going to do next. 
um, you can't just barrel through. You have to think about it. Yeah, for me, it was illness that yes. that changed my perspective on everything. And the reinvention wasn't obvious except in, up here. Isn't I that think okay? about things completely differently than I did before I was ill. So what was it? It's just I had cancer. That, yeah. And 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 it, I, I realized that. Uh, everything can change like that, yes. which I had never, I'd felt like 10 foot tall and bulletproof right. my entire life. Right. And, and it made me really think about the stuff that was important and the things that I worried about, my career, how much money was in my bank account, all this time. It was like, you know what, that's not, I mean, it's important. But it's not the most important thing. No. Yeah. And, and it is, it's that realization and then you kind of have this moment in your life when, when those things happen, you mm -hmm. kind of go, what am I going to do? Yeah. And what, what, what does matter to me? And that is that back to that whole thing about what's my currency? What do I have mm -hmm. to offer in the world? You know, what's my core purpose? What's the context I'm living in? And uh, illness is a, a big, it's a a big wake thing. Up. It's a wake up. You say in the book that a dream or a goal is not enough. And I, I, I get that. But what is it then that you think you need, other than confidence, we've covered that, to be successful? Well, listen, I, I think introspection, mm -hmm. as I said earlier, is everything because you're in a ditch, right? I mean, your life is in a ditch. Yeah. Generally, when you want to reinvent yourself, there's something that's put yeah. you kind of on, you know, you're wondering how you're going to move forward. And so I think introspection, and it's counterintuitive. You have to look back in order to move forward. You have mm -hmm. to think about what your past was and what got you there so that you know what to do next. So I'd say uh, introspection, but then also accountability. You have to take accountability for what got you here in the first place and not blame everybody else. You have to take accountability. And that's a message that I see you on the Dragon's Den uh, giving to the people that come in to pitch you. Yeah. You know, you look for very specific things. I watch the show and I'll be like, oh, she's going to invest in this. She's, she's going <laughs> can to you tell this. I have tells? I, I, kind oh. of, I can kind of tell. <laughs> oh, I didn't I, know that. But, but part of it, I think, is the, it's, it's the, the kind of products that are that are coming yes. at you and I can generally speaking tell there's surprises still yeah. but I can generally speaking tell but accountability is something that um, you talk about on the show uh, in terms of the the people that are pitching to you and what the product is and what it means to the world right I mean at the end of the day you know nobody it is our lives we mm -hmm. you know we were talking about this a, a few minutes ago in the green room about how you know it doesn't have to be for everyone the things you do don't need to matter to everyone mm -hmm. they just need to matter to somebody right. and that somebody is you yeah. You know, like, why are you doing this really matters. And people don't think about that. They just they live their lives for somebody else. And I think in a world, honestly, where we're curating our stories all the time, mm -hmm. right, on Facebook and on social media, and we get stymied by our stories as a result because people expect us to be a certain thing, it's hard to change. You get curated into a corner. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And, you know, do you ever feel that way? I mean, we, you are a very public person. We, you are at events. You are, you know, on the cover. There's a great photograph of you on the cover of the yeah. book. We see you on television uh, constantly. You're out in the world. Do you feel that there's an Arlene Dickinson that we need, that you have to project? Or um, am I talking to the, the, the Arlene Dickinson that I would be if we just went out and had a drink? You're talking to the same yeah. person. I, I think one thing I have learned, I mean, first of all, TV came to me very late in my mm -hmm. life. So I think I had to really be good with who I was before I ended up being a public figure. Yeah. And I have learned, maybe because I'm older, but I've learned that the more honest and transparent and vulnerable you are, the more people will understand and relate to who you are. So trying to be something that 
isn't who I am. It's exhausting. I, I couldn't do it. So, well, you know. I, I would say, I would go even go as too far as to say that you have reinvented yourself from the beginning of that series, which was maybe 13 or 14 years yeah. ago, I think, yeah. uh, until today. I think if you go back and look at the first season uh, of shows, it's, you're different in them. And you're yeah, learning the ropes, probably. Yeah. But uh, maybe did something happen over that time, do you think? I, I Listen, the first time I sat down in the chair on Dragon's Den, I was scared to death. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly felt overwhelmed by it. I didn't really know how I was going to find my place on that mm -hmm. panel. And, you know, learning how to just speak your own truth and learning to just hold your own place made a big difference for me. So I probably have changed. I mean, I've gotten older and I've gotten more experience and hopefully that experience has helped me. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I, my hair's different. <laughs> my skin might be a little... I mean, I might have a few more wrinkles. I don't know. I'm just saying. Yeah. I do, since yeah. I started this. <laughs> you, you start. um, do you look, when people are pitching you, do you look at the idea or the people pitching, or is it just some nuance in the middle there? It is mostly the people pitching, yeah. and then it's the idea. I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of great things out there, great wines, great, mm -hmm. great glasses, great napkins, great whatever you want to um, invent. But it's rare that something is really so unique that you go, oh, I've never, ever right. seen that before. Right. Um, so it's always a different version of the same thing or a newer version or an improved version. Mm -hmm. And then you have to go, but can this person, has this person got the drive and the determination and the dedication to make this happen? And that's what I really care about. Do people pitch you everywhere you go? Honestly, Everywhere. Everywhere. You can't name a place, the bathroom, <laughs> the airplane, <laughs> oh, no. the, the elevators, the like everywhere. And, and it's, it's actually really, you know, people are so nice. I mean, Canadians in particular are super kind and super nice to me, so it's, it's fine. That was Arlene Dickinson, star of Dragon's Den, business person and author of Reinvention, Changing Your Life, Your Career, Your Future. Next, we'll meet American travel writer, author, activist, and television personality, Rick Steves. Rick Steves is an American travel writer, author, activist, and television personality. Since 2000, he has hosted Rick Steves Europe, a travel series on public television. Steves also has a public radio travel show called Travel with Rick Steves and has authored numerous travel guides. In this interview, we talk about where his love of travel comes from and how it can change your life. Why should people travel? We'll start with the hard stuff. Well... You know, the world's an exciting place, and if you stay home and you let uh, commercial media shape your worldview, uh, you, you're really being taken advantage of. You need to get out there and make friends with the rest of the planet, and then I think you realize it's filled with beautiful people and joy and love, and, uh, and you come home with empathy for other people, and I think empathy is a beautiful thing. Is yeah. that what you call good travel? Thoughtful travel. Thoughtful travel? Yeah. I mean, travel can be escapism, it can be recreation, or it can be transformational. Mm -hmm. My mission as a travel writer in the United States is to inspire my readers or my viewers uh, to venture beyond Orlando. That's the big goal because there's only one guidebook that sells better than the Rick Steves Italy guidebook in the United States and that's the guidebook to Disney World. Now I can't compete with that kind of la la yeah. land stuff but I can remind people you can travel and actually learn about other cultures. And the more you do that, the less afraid you become. You come home as a citizen of the planet. Mm -hmm. I come home more thankful than ever that I, I live where I, I am and I appreciate what I've got. But I also realize that you can celebrate the diversity on this planet rather than being afraid of it. What got you started traveling? I never wanted to travel. 
No. My dad decided when I was a schoolboy to import pianos from Germany. So he came home from, I remember I came home from school one day and my dad said, son, we're going to Germany to see the piano <laughs> factories. Uh, dad, that's a stupid idea. Uh, but I went over there and I realized after a couple of days, this world's a fascinating place. And, and was there a thing? Was there something that you saw? Was it just that people spoke a different language maybe you had never heard before? Well, I was statuesque German women with hairy armpits. <laughs> As a 14-year-old kid, to see this like, wow, to be sitting with my relatives in Norway watching Neil Armstrong walk on the moon and hearing the news broadcast in Norwegian mm -hmm. instead of English and realize the whole world is celebrating this. This yeah. is not a United States thing. This is a human accomplishment. To talk to a man with a big handlebar mustache who said, who, who told me what he saw when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated in Sarajevo in 1914. To, to be surrounded by all of that culture and history, I realized, man, oh man, this is an interesting place and, and the world can be my playground. I ended up uh, getting a, a history degree accidentally at the <laughs> University of Washington just because history classes were so much fun. I remember waking up in the dorm and it occurred to me, I've got seven history classes under my belt, three more, and I'm a historian. Let's push on through. <laughs> <laughs> and is that what pushed you into writing these stories down? You know, you, the, yeah. the, the research, the background, the love well, of travel? it's interesting because at first I, I was a piano teacher. My kids wouldn't practice in the summer, and I thought, I'm not going to struggle with this. I'll see you in September. I'm Pianos going to play a big part in your life. <laughs> they really <it> do. <laughs> but I realized after several trips that I was learning from my mistakes and right. I was becoming a much better traveler. And very, very uh, poignant to me, other Americans were making the same mistakes I made the year before. Right. And I, I saw them making these mistakes, and they weren't trip ruining, but they were just expensive and mm -hmm. a shame. And I thought, if I could package the lessons I've learned from my experience into a, a guidebook, other people could learn from my mistakes rather than their own have better trips, and I'd have a good excuse to go back to Europe and update my material. So I've been doing that for the last 30 years, spending four months a year in Europe. I've got the same mission now that I had back then, but now I've got technology beyond my wildest dreams to amplify my teaching. I've got a wonderful staff of 100 people that I work with in Seattle, and we've got guidebooks for every country in Europe, every great city in Europe now, and that's my beat, really. I see Europe as the wading pool for world exploration. And I'm just having so much fun learning and uh, taking notes and sharing these ideas for people who are fortunate enough to travel. What was the break? What was the point at which you said, okay, I, I, I don't have to teach any more piano. piano. I don't have to do any <laughs> of that stuff anymore. Well, I self-published the first edition of yeah. my Europe Through the Back Door book in 1980. And when you, and when you have a book... didn't self-publish so much back then. No, I just thought uh, I was pretty humble about it. And I thought I'm not going to impress any publisher, but... I was giving talks, and I thought I can talk for all day long, or I can write a book and talk for three hours and let you buy the book. Right. And I, I, I learned back then, uh, the, mo the best thing I can do is use my information as a publicity stunt. Give free classes, give a lot of information out, and then people will buy my book or take my tours. And today I, I do the same thing. I, I produce a radio show and a public television show, and I just give it to the system for free, and it, it goes all over the country, and um, I can... Uh, do my business just selling these tours and, and making the guidebooks. And the new one is called Travel as a Political Act. It's the third edition right. of this book. What's yeah. new? Uh, my publisher, I wrote Travel as a Political Act after 9-11, after mm -hmm. me traveling in the Holy Land and Iran and traveling all over the world, uh, getting out of my comfort zone, realizing that the most important souvenir you can take home the most beautiful souvenir is a broader perspective. Right. I'm writing for Americans, uh, and I have to remind my countrymen that we're 4% of this planet, and we're a nice 4%, but there's 96% out yeah, there, yeah. you can get to know there's the neighbors. Lots more, yeah. And it's so much fun to do that, and 
my country is so fearful right now. People used to say bon voyage, now they say have a safe trip. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just nonsense. When somebody tells me have a safe trip, I say, well, you have a safe stay at home, <laughs> okay? And I was gonna update the Travel as a Political Act book and my publisher was all excited about this and I said, but there's so much different now that we have Brexit, mm -hmm. we have President Trump, we've got all sorts of changes in drug policy, we've got all sorts of changes in Central America, We've got Poland and Hungary and Erdogan changing the dynamics in Europe with this populism and so on. So I said, if we're going to update, if we're going to reprint Travel as a Political Act, let's do a new edition. So this new edition is post-Brexit, post-Trump, post, -Trump, post uh, I'm, I'm really into drug policy reform mm -hmm. in Europe, sharing examples of things I learn in Europe. I'm really into struggles in Central America that were framed for an American as communist against freedom, and it's really landless peasants against greedy corporations. Right. And uh, how can Americans be introduced to these ideas from a traveler's perspective? So that's the fun of this book. A little different than my guidebooks to Paris or London. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. It's a whole different thing. But I've been teaching for 30 years, and I've had this sort of natural evolution in my passion as a teacher. First, it was the skills. That was the 1980s. I wrote Europe Through the Back Door. Then it was appreciating art and history. I wrote a book called Europe 101. And since 9-11, the pinnacle of that Maslow's hierarchy of travel needs is to travel in a way where you get out of your comfort zone and, as I said, come home with an empathy for people outside of our borders. And that's what makes it important. I think the more empathy. important now than ever. You know, the United, Canadians are not uh, as burdened with this, I think, as Americans, but it's a challenge for, I think, almost everybody, is not to be ethnocentric. Mm -hmm. It's very easy for Americans to think we're the norm, but we're not. And the Americans that are the most ethnocentric are the ones that are also the most fearful. And they happen to be the ones buried deep in the middle of our great country with no passports. Mm -hmm. People whose worldview is shaped by news media, commercial news media. And those are the people that I wish I could just get a plane ticket for and help them go out there and get to know the world because it's, it's a beautiful place. Have you heard from any of those people whose lives have been changed? Do you, you, you oh, meet your them. readers and, and listeners and viewers? Uh, what have you heard from them? it inspires me to work harder than ever. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it, it's so gratifying. And I could, go to, I could go to Bellingham or San Francisco or Vancouver and preach to the choir, right. but I love to go to um, red states yeah. and uh, share what I've learned. Uh, you know, for 25 years I was leading our tours. We took 30,000 people on our tours last year on a thousand different tours around Europe. And I, I artfully learned how not to abuse the bully pulpit. When you're right. the tour guide, you right. can hammer people with this European sensibility. Yeah, yeah. But that only, that only uh, is self-defeating. You have to bring people to the experience and then they can see, oh, these people do it that way and they like it. And it doesn't mean it's right or wrong, it's an option. And then you come home and, and then Americans are more aware of quirky things about our society. You learn a lot about your own country sometimes by leaving, at it, leaving it and looking at it from afar. I think waste is one of the things that you notice when you travel abroad. We are, as North Americans, a wasteful oh, yeah. uh, society. And you go to Europe, you go to Asia, you go to other places, and it just that. simply isn't the same. I love that. I mean, simple little things in Paris, part of the culture is ladies going to the market with their little yep. um, trolleys. Yep. And they use that trolley every day. You go to a Christmas market in Munich, and there are ceramic mugs that you put your hot spiced wine in, and they recycle those. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they, they clean them and use them again. Whereas Americans would more likely have a styrofoam disposable cup and, and throw it away. Yeah. Let's talk about poverty tourism. This is something that uh, you hear about. You you uh, have people that travel to the poorest places on earth, mm -hmm. and I often feel that poverty tourism 
I mean, I, the name says it all. You're, the, the people that are going are going not out of a sense of helping, but out of a sense of, of uh, wanting to have a look and feigning empathy, but I'm not sure yeah. that it's actually there. Well, it is a serious responsibility if you decide to travel to the developing world and, yeah. and have voyeurism kind of of their struggles and their poverty. I've been traveling to poor parts of the world as a good steward ever since I was a college kid. And I remember even back in, in those old days going down to Central America, and I, I wrestled with this because I was spending to go down there probably three years income of the people I was taking right. pictures of. Right. Every time I took a photograph back in the days of film, that was half a day's income. And I would take two photos just to get a good shot. Yeah. And I, I struggled with this. I, I used to be, go on these reality tours, and they're wonderful tours, powerful educational tours. And I realized that if I go home and then take that new sensibility home and live that as an American citizen, go into the voting booth, and not in the privacy of the voting booth, vote for what's good for me, mm -hmm. but understand that who wins this election has a bigger impact on people south of the border. That's a very good investment that I went down there and learned that. If I come home and say, great, I got pictures of me at the well with a lady with a jug on her head, that's not gonna accomplish anything, but I'm all into, okay, you had that experience, now what are you gonna do mm -hmm. back home as a citizen, of, as a caring, citizen of the planet. I've got a gig in public television in the United States and, and so on, so I'm going to go with my TV crew just in, a couple, in, a, just in the next uh, couple of months to Guatemala and Ethiopia, and we're going to make a one-hour special mm -hmm. on the, the, the foundation of extreme poverty and what modern developmental aid is doing, just because that's an area where Americans, I think, are steep on the learning curve. And in one spasm of fear and selfishness, we could zero out all of our foreign aid. And I think that would be tragic, not only from a love your neighbor point of view, and that doesn't resonate with a lot of Americans these right. days, but from a selfish um, national security point mm -hmm. of view. We cannot have this desperation south of the border because it makes the world less stable. That was Rick Steves, American travel writer, author, activist, and television personality. My TV show, Pop Life, comes back on January 25th, so please join us at 8.30 p.m. on the CTV News Channel at midnight on CTV for all new shows. We'll talk to you again next week.